Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. On our website, you'll find resources and a free sample from my Wisdom Publications book, Unsubscribe, which is available at bookstores and online retail outlets. Thanks for listening. Uh, tonight... Uh, teaching about one of the uh, more mysterious uh, ideas of the Buddha that's uh, clearly very uh, important in the Dharma, yet it was ill-defined in the, uh, the suttas, the teachings. What we do know is that during Nama Rupa, which is uh, in the Buddhist teachings, one of the earliest stages of human development, roughly equivalent to the attachment stage in contemporary psychology, which is just uh, events shortly after birth uh, that occur in interactions between the child and the caregiver. There are core attributes of personality that are instilled and that shape not uh, only uh, the basic tendencies, proclivities of our personality, but also um, help shape the very way we perceive the world. And in this, this phase of development, the Buddha said that one of the uh, qualities or uh, uh, mental attributes that are ingrained is what he called sana. And sana roughly translates to the perceptions we have. Of the world, and there's, it's very clear from the Buddhist teachings that these perceptions are largely uh, not accurate. That the human mind perceives the world uh, in not a what you would say accurate representation by any means. That we don't see the world; we see our perceptions of the world, and our perceptions are shaped by our family systems, the early caregiving experiences, cultural biases, and that it significantly distorts everything we experience. In uh, one of the suttas known as the distortions of the mind, the Buddha, when he's defining perceptions, he says the mind distorts the worlds with a wide variety of misperceptions, we often see things to be stable when they're actually unstable. We see things that cause suffering as pleasurable, and we see a sense of self where there is no self. Now, this is by no means, from any contemporary perspective, any uh, perspective of clinical uh, psychology or science, a novel claim. In fact, uh, pretty much all of contemporary cognitive science uh, demonstrates that the the world that we perceive in our minds is uh, significantly altered from what's actually occurring. Um, Donald Hoffman, who's probably the one of the most central and influential cognitive sciences scientists of our era, he's a uh, a professor and a scientist at the University of California, um, uh, suggests probably the, one of the most uh, coherent 
uh, pictures and states that our perceptions of the world are absolutely, in his words, nothing like reality. Other scientists have said it's just similar enough to reality that we don't bump into the furniture, as it were, but that we, other than that, our perceptions are extremely distorted. Now, Hoffman uses a fascinating example. He says that if you look on your, your laptop desktop screen, it might show a file as a little blue icon sitting in a corner of your desktop. That doesn't mean that the actual file itself, the numbers, the words, you know, in any way looks like that little representation. It's simply a representation of the truth. And Hoffman argues that everything we perceive is mutually taught, agreed upon, distortions that simply represent the way the world in a way that is helpful for us but not in any way accurate an accurate depiction of what's inside of your computer would make no sense you just see zeros and ones or at the very least you'd see like a tiny little like if you if it was if the file was representing for example, uh, something you'd written in Microsoft Word, it would look like a tiny little page, pages with tiny little words, and that wouldn't be helpful for you. So you just see what looks like a blue folder and words. It's just a representation. And Hoffman argues that that's the way our perceptions of the world are. Now, whether you take such an extreme stance as that or that we simply uh, view it more in the sense that the mind systemically alters our experience in a way that is set up to help us survive. For example, um, throughout natural selection and human evolution, it was important for us to be able to spot the color red because things that were red indicated either blood or fruits or things that were important for us to see. So... Consequently, the human mind represents virtually any shade of red as far more intense than it actually is. And two, in any situation where there are a variety of colors, cognitive science shows that we always go to red first. We don't go to the other colors with any degree of of, of balance. We always pay attention to something that is red first. Red is not inherently a more important color. It's simply something that over the course of evolution has been essentially shaped by human perception to achieve a far greater significance. Now, while some of our misperceptions of the world are ingrained by natural selection, in other words, they're transpersonal, they're uh, in every culture, Many of our perceptions are idiosyncratic to us individually. We each have our own set of perceptions that are shaped by our own life experience, our own early interactions with caregivers. And these early interactions with uh, our, (coughs) our caregivers, our guardians, our siblings, our family system, early peer interactions shape how we act in situations where we feel we're with someone important. They shape who we believe is attractive and who's not attractive, 
who we turn to for support and who we essentially don't look for guidance, who we view as engulfing or who we perceive to be uh, useful or useless. And these uh, are known in contemporary psychology uh, by a variety of different names. Uh, Some refer to them as internal working models and some refer to them as schemas depending upon which therapeutic school you might belong to. But one thing that is in common to all schools is that A, our unconscious perceptions of other people and situations are unconscious. They are not conscious. They are not ideas that you can say aloud. You won't be able to say, well, when I'm looking for a partner, I prefer a abandoning, unavailable... (laughs) a person who reminds me just like good old dad or good old mom because that's what was modeled for me and therefore I (coughs) systemically overlook people who are secure and available for love. That's not something that you can consciously state aloud, but it governs your behaviors and it will trigger, most importantly of all, your unconscious perceptions, what the Buddha called sana, the Buddha notes, triggers what are called feelings, Vedana. So from our perceptions, there is a set of unconscious or barely conscious gut feelings that determine how we experience things. So this is important to know. When I talk about the fact that sauna or perceptions distort reality, I'm not so much saying that somebody looks far more handsome or whatever or attractive than they actually are. What I'm talking about is that the way we perceive, experience other people, objects, is largely determined by how we feel when we are interacting or looking at that person or object. The gut feelings, what the Buddha calls Vedana, or what we now know to be somatic markers, according to Antonio Damasio, literally shape how we perceive any experience to be. So if you are interacting with someone that you've just met at a party and your gut feelings tense and your shoulders tense and your body contracts, then you will perceive that person as risky, uh, undesirable, uninteresting. You will look for the first excuse to leave. On the other hand, if your body manifests feelings of excitation because that person represents or reminds you of an early attachment figure, it might create very, very positive feelings and then you'll start to get excited by that person's presence and then that will distort the entire way you experience that interaction to be. So the most important thing to realize is that our perceptions are shaped (coughs) very, very young in life. They are exceptionally unconscious and they are signaled to us largely somatically through the body and then secondarily through the way things appear. Okay, so that's a a summary so far. Perceptions also shape how we behave or act in situations where we feel we are in the presence of power or someone who has some form of authority. Um, I'm sure 
you are all like me that if you happen to be driving, or in my case, I don't really drive that much, so just walking down the street and a cop car slowly pulls aside you, you don't exactly feel that comfortable. It doesn't necessarily raise feelings of, it's hard while you're driving to feel completely casual and relaxed while cop is riding right alongside you in a cop car. I mean, maybe you do. I I don't. Um, it's a shaped perception that this in, this individual, this dynamic is important. It could lead to trouble. <laughs> that it creates a heightened sense of alertness. It creates a state of either recalcitrance or submissiveness. The way we act when we are in any sort of vulnerable or power. Uh, hierarchy is very determined by perceptions and early dynamics with caregivers. So uh, this is important not just in terms of our relationships but also in terms of just the way we live in the world. A very important uh, 20th I can't believe I'm going here in a talk but whatever I just employ in my talks anything that I think drills a point home, uh, there was actually a very influential 20th century Marxist philosopher, Luis Althusser, that argued that all of class is largely, class systems are essentially reproduced unconsciously in its subjects, that we walk around with these essentially unconscious uh, class views about our, who we are, what we should, what kind of jobs we should have, what kind of work we should do, how we should act around other people, what kind of music and culture we should like. And then, uh, Pierre Bourdieu followed that up. Uh, so this is this idea that perceptions socialize us, not just in the romantic partnerships we choose. <laughs> not just in the friends we choose, but literally in the very fundamental choices we make of where we work and how we consume and all that. They are deeply embedded, and they're not things that we're aware of. They simply are unconscious uh, uh, mechanisms that create body feelings that then create behaviors. And sometimes uh, if we are in a subgroup that's vulnerable, even though we have every right to be confident and uh, to uh, speak and act for ourselves, we might feel physical um, impulses to shrink and to not speak up and to essentially uh, cower or become submissive. Now, uh, another interesting element is that to we develop all these behaviors to hide the how deeply um, uh, ingrained and instilled and unconscious our choices are. And one contemporary uh, theorist, have you ever heard of Slavov Žižek? Some of you have. He's like I'm not I'm not exactly a fan of his. Uh, he's a, a rather. Uh, in many ways irritating uh, 
and makes grandiose claims and uh, can uh, be uh, uh, a bit buffoonish. But he did offer something very interesting, I think. He noted that, um, that people hide from themselves how deeply ingrained are the unconscious processes are that make our choices for us by little acts of transgression that conceal from us the fact that our choices are not made by free will, but are actually very largely guided by early instilled cultural and family biases. So he says that the times that people, uh, you know, smoke pot at home or do food or shopping binges or jerk off to porn or act out at social gatherings are attempts, these transgressions are attempts that we employ to lie to ourselves, to conceal just how compliant we are, that we transgress and act out, but generally very covertly or in safe places at bars or parties or at the sanctity of our homes, we act out as a way to give ourselves the delusion that we are making our choices and that we are not in some way uh, <laughs> deeply compliant beings. Uh, and these little acts of transgression, it would seem to me, inhibit any real authentic acts of change. Because the more people uh, gossip and talk about how awful their boss is with other co-workers, the less likely any form of union organizing or uh, subversive action they take. It's a, that little transgression takes the place of doing something that actually significantly leads to change. So what that's very clear from the life of the Buddha is that change demands overt, not covert, clandestine, small, little hidden acts, but overt acts that disrupt all of our inauthentic behaviors and all of the instilled forms of compliance that we've enacted over the years. For example, somebody who, when we go into therapy, which is a great idea, and we talk about for a long period of time all of the mechanisms that led us to choose unreliable romantic partners or to stay in workplaces that are uh, meaningless, that don't create a sense of purpose, while all those explanatory uh, ideas are interesting and they can be very naturalizing and they can give us a sense of, of connection, but real change requires that person to actually let go of a relationship with somebody who's unavailable, to quit a job that's uh, unfulfilling, to set real hard boundaries with family members or friends, to protest social injustice. It's only when we actually have a manifest uh, discernible act against some form of power or in some situation where we've essentially acted against our own best interest, have been overly compliant. It's only when we do something that disrupts the system that the perceptions that underlie 
this behavior begin to be rattled. And I've seen this time and time again in my work in counseling when people come for years and they're stuck just talking about, um, uh, you know, relational issues that lead to unhappiness. Uh, that very often there's very little change, but when there's just the right mixture of suffering and desperation and some act occurs when that person finally says, no, I'm not going to take this. I'm, you're, I'm not going to show, I'm not going to show up anymore. I quit this relationship, this job. Um, that there's a real change. Now, for some of us, we can't, afford to do that because it's too big a step. It's too scary. So for tonight's talk, I'm just going to recommend the utility of saying no and declining invitations and the ability to set boundaries as a way to start that process of disrupting this sort of unconscious socializing perceptions that keep us in fear-based relationships where we, with parents, with uh, roommates, with uh, people we work with, with uh, other individuals, we feel the need to always be agreeable, to be pleasing, to be nice. And all of those impulses are deeply at times <laughs> socializing in not a positive way of socializing, not in a sense of making us be able to connect and disclose our feelings. Very often, the excessive tendencies to be compliant and agreeable are actually set up on false perceptions that I can't say no at my job. I can't set boundaries in a relationship. I can't set guidelines when I go home to family gatherings. I can't decline certain invitations if it's too much or if the last time I went to a social event like this, it was deeply unpleasant for me. One of the false perceptions we have is that any time we say no or we decline or we say, I can't do this right now, maybe another time, is that it creates this feeling that will be completely abandoned or rejected, that nothing will ever be the same, that will fall through the cracks of the world, that everything will come unglued and apart. And that is a false perception. If you've been in a job or a relationship or you've been in any situation, the only way you change the power dynamics and change the underlying conscious perceptions is by being able to take actions that are not only empowering, but change, you change the perception by changing the way we act, okay? That's the simplest way to say it. We don't change the way we think and then act. It's actually, there has to be a change in the behavior that then leads to new perceptions of what we're capable of and how safe we are. We don't uh, feel safe and then act safe. We act safe and then become secure. And part of the way we can do this, here's the real cheat in the system, is that all of the false perceptions that keep us enchained and 
and acting in self-defeating ways are signaled to us somatically through the body, through tensions in the stomach, in the chest, contracted shoulders, uh, a sort of a rapidly beating heart. If in situations where we're interacting in a job interview, we might immediately go into a subservient trying to get other people to like us rather than go in on, hey, you need me just as much as I need you, fuckers. Is uh, <clears throat> because we, we can tell ourselves, hey, they need me just as much as I need them, but if we don't change the way we're embodied... You know, you go in there and immediately we're slouched, the not making eye contact, the shoulders are, you know, collapsed. We're back in the child place going in front of the parents asking for forgiveness for something we've done. If we want to change the dynamic in situations where we've been disempowered, we have to change the body first. That changes the feelings, that changes the behaviors, and then that changes the perceptions and how we view situations in our life. So to say no, it will, or to set boundaries, it will create feelings of uncomfort because it's going against deeply instilled perceptions that if I speak up for myself, if I say, I can't do this right now, I can't take on more responsibilities at work, I can't show up uh, back home for an extended period of time. I can't interact uh, with this person alone. At first, it'll create felt discomfort, and that might encourage us to be compliant. So the way we start this process is by creating a felt sense in the body of strength and confidence. We associate it with our self-representation And that has been shown by a group of clinical psychologists. When you associate feelings of physical strength and and you know of uh, being in an energetic body, if you can hold and maintain that embodied state, that somatic state, then when you go into situations where in the past we've agreed to uh, do things that have not been in our best interest then we can begin the process of saying, hey, right now, I can't do that. Maybe in the future, but not right now. So tonight's meditation is going to be developing or exploring this tool of physically creating a sense of confidence and empowerment, associating it with our self-representation, and then we're going to do a visualization of what it would be like to actually say no in a situation where in the past we haven't had that skill because visualization meditations has uh, been practiced since early Buddhism are very powerful tools to help us in, uh, ingrain or instill real change in our behaviors. So thank you for listening. I hope that that was interesting in some small way. And uh, now let's practice. So, closing the eyes and just take a moment to just allow your body to wobble like a top back and forward.
front and back and just then allow your body on its own to come to a position that feels comfortable for your body, which is the regions of the brain that determine balance are not conscious. They're actually <clears throat> right parietal lobe. And that's not something that you can consciously dictate. You have to let your body do it for you. So, and now we're going to take, as usual, some breaths just to start the process of relaxing. So take a nice, full, complete in-breath. And while you're doing, lift your shoulders up like you're picking up two extremely heavy bags which you have to place on a shelf or something. You have to lift them up. And you're holding these heavy bags and then you're going to drop them on that shelf and let go of your shoulders. And then as your shoulders drop, pull them back a little bit. Not not in any... Uh, excessive way, but just open enough that you feel the chest, sternum, the rib cage slightly open up, creating a really open space. And there's a real reason we're doing this. It tones the vagal vagus nerve and makes you feel safer. And then for the second in-breath, complete in-breath through the nose, pulling in your belly really tight or pushing it out really extremely, whatever feels right for you. So pulling it in or pushing it out. And then when you breathe out through the mouth, softening the muscles in the abdomen. Again, another key region of the vagal nerves, which influence deeply our emotional moods. And then for the third complete in-breath, squinching the toes, making fists, and especially squinching the muscles in the face, the really pinched, ugly face, squeezing the nose, clenching the jaw, micro-muscles around the eyes, and then breathe out. And now just really relaxing, releasing the jaw, softening those micro-muscles around the eyes, unfurrowing the brow, and sending a polite request to your eyes to relax and settle in for a nice respite from all the hours it spends bouncing around, looking at smartphones and laptops and other people and just encouraging the eyes to take a nice relaxing comfortable easeful reclining state not they don't have to do anything for a while when your eyes relax very often the mind follows And uh, just take a brief survey starting with the top of your head and like your awareness is a body scanner, scanning down, noticing all of the 
sensations and if you come across any sensation as you scan down the body, maybe in the upper back or the buttocks or in the legs or somewhere you feel something that's maybe needlessly clenched or contracted, just stop for a moment and breathe into that area of the body using the in-breath to bring awareness and then very slowly the out-breath is like an energy flowing through that tension and releasing. So in-breath, awareness, out-breath, release.
So now bring awareness to the overall mood of the mind. The mind sometimes can be really tired and just energyless, or it could be filled with an attention that's jumping about, or it could be a mind that's easily distracted. Buddha talked about this as the emotional settings of the mind in the citta. And so try to cultivate a state of mind by bringing into your awareness an image of a place you associate with just pure comfort and freedom and the permission to relax, a place that you would go to where you don't have any desire to think about things that are unresolved in your life, things about the future, possible events. When you get to this cherished spot or location, All you want to do is just find a really comfortable chair and just sit and drink it all in. Maybe a blanket on the beach you want to lie in and just feel the sand, hear the sounds of the surf, feel the warm rays of the sun, or maybe it's a place in the country where you just want to feel a breeze and hear the sounds of nature. Wherever it is, it's a time where you have nothing to do, nowhere to go. You've got no one to take care of or please. You're absolutely free of any sense of longing for anything else or any sense that something's missing. You just rest in the completion or completedness of the completeness of the experience itself. There's nothing missing. You don't have to do anything. <coughs> any thought about anything else that's not present is a thought you feel permission to just put aside for the time being. So, letting go of that image and bringing that same state of mind into the present we're in right now, which is actually just as good a moment to cherish, to awaken in, to find liberation, We don't have to wait for some future special time. We can right now just land fully in our life without one of the most deeply ingrained misperceptions that there's something missing, that I'm not good enough or complete. I haven't accomplished enough. I need to get, do more. This is your time to stop and 
practice the small revolutionary act of just being okay and observant of your life exactly as it is without trying to consume anything Try not to uh, become frustrated if a thought pulls you away from the present. Just return to the experience of all the sensations around you, trying to get as close as you can to the sounds and the body states and the Feelings, the breath, drinking in all the actual sensations that we so often overlook, 
and seeing how close we can get to perceiving the world without any of all the overlay of instilled beliefs and responses just constantly relaxing and drinking in the experience of being anytime a thought pulls you away that's okay just feel good about the fact that you've become aware of it and just open back up into what's surrounding you So at this time I'd like you to employ your ability to create, if you can, images in your mind. If you can't, just 
whatever form your imagination takes, I'd like you to bring to mind some activity in which you feel very confident. Some area which you feel you have developed real skills or expertise. Or a situation with other people wherein you can be helpful Any situation in where you can confidently express yourself, where you don't shrink, back down, beg off, retreat, but situations where you feel a sense of empowerment or a sense of strength. Just hold any image that you associate with that state. And then as you hold the image or just reflect on that capability you have, see if you can connect with some feeling of energy flowing in your chest or in your body, some What does it feel like to be confident, to be strong, to be capable, to be sure of oneself, to not be vulnerable? What does that feel like? See if you can use images or any imaginative quality you can to create that state of embodied strength or assuredness when you can if you can't If nothing comes to mind, just create a strong body by opening up your chest and keeping your head up and just breathing in and just sending the energy from the center in the chest outwards to the limbs like somebody who has a sense of real... conviction... And then hold your image as you might appear in a mirror in your mind as you hold this state of strength in your body. What we're doing is associating your self-representation with confidence. If when we think of ourselves, when we conjure up a sense of ourself, there's a physical sense of strength that comes up, then we are far more capable to act and speak up in situations where in the past we haven't. We just feel that body state of strength and and hold your image in your mind as you would appear in a mirror right now 
or any time. And finally, for the last step of this practice, I'd like you to keep that empowered sense wherever you can feel it in your body. Hold it. See if you can spread it with the breath. So keep that strong sense in you and then see if you can replace your image with the image of someone that you find it scary or difficult to say no to, to set boundaries with. (coughs) Just visualize someone who's intimidating, someone who you've often felt an inclination to be overly submissive or agreeable when it hasn't been in your best interest. Just hold that physical sense of strength and just imagine yourself saying no.
So in a moment I'm going to ring the bowl and when you hear the sound see if you can bring with you into the rest of the evening an awareness of your body and with that awareness of your body see if you can maintain some of the physical attributes of that quality of confidence that's just an exercise and when you feel confident at times just link it with your sense of self your image So of course these types of practices which try to change unconscious perceptions take a while so uh, it generally requires just an ongoing uh, uh, daily if very short part of your practice to simply visualize yourself in situations in where you feel confident and strong and uh, essentially capable of protecting yourself and then link it up with your self-representation, your image, so that eventually as you conjure up a sense of, you know, whatever your name is, meanness, whoever I am, whenever you think of yourself, you start to change the somatic state. The more, interestingly enough, um, so many of our behaviors and our uh, proclivities and tendencies interpersonally are activated by the sense of the somatic sense that we maintain when we think of ourselves. We actually, if we have a sense of oneself being small and vulnerable, then we act in those ways. If we have a sense of one being undesirable or unlovable, then we act and uh, we become desperate in relationships. So when you have a sense of um, physical confidence, embodied sense of, uh, of, uh, of, of uh, being capable, then we act from that over time. So I'm going to turn this off.